You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. Can you imagine the airports otherwise? You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. There's an eye in your house. We'll send you to the colonies. You'll be cleaning up toxic waste and then you'll die. Celebration of Gilead and of what we have achieved. We only wanted to make the world better. Better. Better never means better for everyone. We want to keep on living for her. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness. everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone and today we have a couple of weird little subjects we're going to talk about. First off, we're going to talk about alternative history or speculative fiction. Now this is movies or stories, uh, TV shows, books, whatever, that have to do with history being different for some reason that we know it, thereby changing future events or present events. This is happening in many different forms of media. We see it in movies, we see it on television shows, on books it's been happening for a long time. So we're going to take a look at some of the most noticeable ones that affect, you know, our genre interests. Then we are going to continue with our Star Wars original figures, the Kenner line, going over those great figures of the past. Last time we left off, I believe, in Return of the Jedi. We were about halfway through Return of the Jedi. We are going to continue with that line. We've actually made some new discoveries that we have never even known before that are pretty silly and ridiculous and funny. So I'm sure you're not going to want to miss that. And then we're going to wrap up with a comic book movie adaptation review. We are hitting the third original Planet of the Apes films with Escape from the Planet of the Apes. One of the not greatest movies ever made, but one that I've learned to respect more just by reading this comic. And we also have some news on some of the future ones to see if there are more coming. So let's get started with alternative history. 
interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin direct via satellite from our on-the-spot task force. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Thank you, Bob. It's Mort. Mort, yes. I am Ted Baxter, and here is the news. Today we're going to talk about a subject in fiction, whether it's written fiction or movie fiction or even television fiction, that sometimes pops up is a genre that comes up every now and then, and that is alternative history, fictional history, or speculative fiction. This is when you take historic events and change them so that the outcome are different and now you have a background for whatever your story happens to be at. Most likely, these have to do with some kind of war, most likely World War II a lot of times, ending in a different manner, thereby changing the future. And that's where your story takes place. The reason I bring this up is because we've had a story come up in the last couple of weeks that HBO is planning on doing a series called Confederacy. And it will explore what the country would look like today if the South had won the Civil War. Now, just the news of that has generated uh, quite a bit of flack in terms of outrage from groups not very happy about, you know, how this will take place. In other words, how this will be portrayed. Some people are afraid that this is going to be a glamorizing or a romanticizing of what an outcome like that would look like. Once again, given the recent political climate these days, with what's been happening, with the rise of the alt-right, the white nationals, the KKK, the Nazis... You know, all these fringe groups that all of a sudden have become very more important all of a sudden, they seem to have a seat at the table these days. People are a little worried about mainstreaming that kind of hatred when it comes to a a television series. Now, HBO has put out a number of comments stating that they're, you know, they're going to be very respectful about it and it is not something that will paint that in a positive way view, I believe. So we're not sure exactly when and how that will take place, but I personally am interested in it because of uh, the historical fiction portion of it. The fact that it's been done before. We've seen movies and television series and books and stuff like that that have to deal with that. Now, a lot of it, sometimes it kind of falls, sometimes, under the science fiction realm. A lot of times it's just speculative fiction. It's alternative. It's different. And I want to go over a couple of the most popular ones that nowadays we might be more familiar with. One that's very, very recent right now that's going on on cable is The Man in the High Castle, which is a Philip K. Dick novel originally, same guy that wrote Blade Runner. This deals with what would a post-World War II America look like once the Nazis had taken over, let's say, two-thirds of the country, the east side, the, the east portion of the country, the, the middle and east, and the Japanese would have taken over the west side of the country. Now, because it's Philip K. Dick, there is an element of science fiction here because we're dealing with situations where people are starting to become aware 
of the fact that there is an alternative outcome of this war that took place a couple of years ago. So in this case, you know, you're throwing a little a little twist to the to the alternative view of what happened in history. I'm still in the process of watching the show and I have not read the book yet, which will be interesting to see how you kind of compress all that into into something like that. A long time ago, I remember watching a television series or a mini series called America with a K. Now, this was part of more like the 80s version of alternative history, and that is what happens to the United States once the Soviet Union takes over. Now, in a way, this particular miniseries was almost kind of like the answer to The Day After, another miniseries that they had that dramatized nuclear war, and it was very anti-war and anti conflict kind of series. Here, what they did was the opposite, and they gave you a series that gives you a more of a conservative point of view of, if we don't watch out for these bad guys, this is what's going to happen. So it gave you this Soviet takeover of America and how people years later start to kind of wake up to the the uh, occupation status that they're under and maybe start to kind of build on some kind of a rebellion eventually taking place. The thing about this miniseries, America, which I believe Chris Christopherson starred in it, this one came out around the time or somewhere around the time where Red Dawn had come out. Now, if you guys... Remember Red Dawn, which was recently remade disastrously. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it tanked even before it hit the theaters this time around. Red Dawn, movie by John Milius, great director, the guy who did Conan. I mean, come on, this guy was awesome. He was a super action-y, you know, a man's man type of director. Well, he made this very, very... You could say political film. You could say it, it helped to stoke the flames of you know anti-Soviet fear back in the 80s. It kind of went with the rhetoric of we have to do this because of the Soviets. We have to do that because of the you know that went on for years. But that was just his thing that you know he was good at those kind of movies. And what he created was an action film, a war slash action film where again the Soviets take over. I think the Cubans or the Nicaraguans, they come from the South and the Soviets come from the, the from the East or from the West. And okay, bottom line is that the U.S. has taken over and the movie somewhat chronicles the beginning of a resistance movement within the U.S., mainly by kids because it's the 80s and, you know, the, the young heartthrobs are the ones that have to <laughs> save us from the bad guys. And this was, uh, this was full of... Uh, 80s Hollywood icons like Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Leah Thompson. You know, this was, I guess, you know, it, it was it was trying to kind of do a little Brat Packy, <laughs> not so much A-listers, but kind of like B-listers and throwing them in, a, in an action-y war film of the time, let's say. But again, it dealt with a completely fictionalized event. And in the story, it shows you how these young kids, you know, they're high school kids. And next thing you know, they're like guerrilla fighters and uh, they kind of paved the way to retaking the country back and blah, blah, blah. Okay, it's interesting. It's very 80s action-y type of stuff. It's it's borderline Chuck Norrisy 
type of action where it's it is completely unrealistic in certain aspects and but you know what you go along with it because it is almost like science fiction there are certain elements that you have to just accept because if you get bogged down into the the muck of the reality of it you realize that that formula or that particular story doesn't work it doesn't there's no way these things could happen in this manner but anyway it is a very it was a pretty successful action film and it, it is one of Milius's you know better films i would say uh, i mean i'm always you know i'm always a conan person i love absolutely love conan but this is one of his uh, achievements now a film like that red dawn and again like i say it was remade and i think the the most recent remake had them uh, had the bad guys be uh, asian in some shape or form i don't remember if it was north korean or something like that so they had to kind of change it to make it more of our time but <laughs> <laughs> that was a different flavor of it. So, you know, you're, you have to structure this whole story based on those historical events that obviously never happened. Now, for a different style altogether, there's a film out there called The Confederate States of America. And it's a kind of like a mockumentary, not in terms of it being completely comedic, but it is very, it tries to take the Ken Burns style of documentary presentation but it throws in these ads that are that if you watch back then you probably would have thought this is kind of funny it's it's you know there it, it is it falls more on the mockumentary side than in the documentary side but it's almost like you're watching two different films one of them is presenting what the history of the country would have been like if the south would have won the war and then the other side is kind of presenting to you how those results become part of pop culture and mass marketing and just the regular everyday aspects of American life, you know, through media, of course, whether it's you're watching TV or you're selling a product or whatever, and how we kind of adjust to those type of things. No matter what the historical situation is, we always adjust to it and kind of justify just about anything that gets thrown in our direction. It's not the best made <laughs> documentary or mockumentary in the world, but one of the points that I've, I've read on the internet is that if you watch this documentary 10 years ago, you know, when the movie, I think the movie might have came out many years ago, you would have taken it as more as a comedic entry into the mockumentary side. But if you watch it today, it kind of loses a little bit of the comedy and it feels a little more serious because of the background of certain events that are happening right now. That's one that it's easy to find. I believe it's even on YouTube already that you could just watch it on YouTube, which it's really interesting, you know. And it's funny how the, you know, the amount of research and imagination that goes into documenting, you know, historical events and turning them completely upside down, it's pretty interesting. As opposed to a, a dramatic presentation where, you know, you're giving the background story and then you're presented, you know, the A story is a story about, for example, in Red Dawn, it's about a whole bunch of kids that are fighting bad guys, with the backdrop being this alternative history. But here in a documentary, the alternative history is the foreground. That is the main subject that you're dealing with. So what the film lacks in, in being that good or that well-made, it makes up on, you know, the amount of work that had to be done to create this structure. If you like your alternative history with a little bit of a comic book flair, <laughs> take a look at Watchmen. 
Obviously, you could read the comic, which was the most famous, you know, format of that particular story. But there's a movie they made, uh, Zack Snyder, you know, he's, part of his claim to fame was the Watchman film, which I'm not going to discuss the film in terms of how good is it in terms of the comic book versus... No, but the fact that the storyline has to do with history changing for some reason having to do we're presented with the fact that once you introduce superheroes into the mix and once the superheroes start doing their superhero type of stuff they start changing history because they throw everything kind of out of whack and in the watchman storyline it's a kind of starts around the vietnam era and the kennedy assassination and all those uh 1960s kind of events that brings a more prominent change to historical events, even though they give you the background that these superheroes have been around, you know, since the 30s or the 40s or the 50s, which kind of coincides with comic books also, you know, the creation of superheroes around that time. But they present to you a view where once they started to be really active in society in performing these superhero kind of acts, that's when history starts to get skewed and that certain events start to lean in different directions. With Watchmen, you know, you have an exaggerated or an extended Nixon era <laughs> that kind of, uh, he does not go off the rails and he continues to be in power for a longer time than normal history. And your society is just different. It's a more totalitarian kind of environment, more or less, a more violent, uh, more separated, you know, less diverse type of country. So that is a way of viewing at it, you know, in a comic book perspective. So that's kind of neat too. Now, if you go in that direction, and again, Sometimes it's so easy to call it science fiction because you, you kind of deviate. There are many what you could consider post-apocalyptic films that go in a direction of a change in catastrophic or war or something happens that changes society. But that's completely different because a lot of times when you're dealing with a post-apocalyptic scenario, there really is no more history left. In other words, we're mainly talking about a situation where society continues to exist kind of the way it does now, except it has a different bent because of it. It's not like everything just completely collapses and you're, you know, it's Mad Max world that you're dealing with. But I'll give you another one, A Handmaid's Tale, the book, the movie, and the TV series. It just happens that, uh, you know, I became interested in getting to know that story recently because of the Showtime series that started and started to get, you know, pretty good reviews. So what I did was, and, and this is a, a, a very unusual situation I find myself in right now, I am currently reading the book, I am halfway through the film, the Robert Duvall film, and I just started watching the series. So I'm in a situation now where I have three different mediums, <laughs> more or less, and I don't know which one I want to get too far on because I don't want to mess up, you know, the other one. So I have to decide, do I continue reading the book? Do I finish the movie or do I go with the series to catch up with everything else? Do I Should I try to drive all of these three different trains at the same time? But uh, the reason I mentioned this particular story is because it does deal, once again, with some kind of a political situation stemming from a scientific catastrophic event where women are having trouble conceiving and... 
that results in political problems having to do with a country like America becoming more totalitarian, more fascist, women's rights go out the window, the women just become childbearing vessels. It's an extreme, I would say, right-wingy type of scenario of women's rights, let's say. So there you go again. You have another uh, scenario where you are presented with a world that is pretty much like it used to be or it is now and how it's switched over over a matter of years because the characters are also old enough to remember what it was like, let's say, five years ago, you know, where things had started to change. They went from normal to crazy. And, and you see that that switch, that, that it's almost like that, um, that World War II you know, rise of Nazism switch where you have what could be considered a normal society and all of a sudden there's these rumblings of these other groups that are becoming more powerful and all of a sudden you're in front of their rifles. So you kind of get to feel that switch over because in the TV show and in the book too, you do get a little back and forth of what it was like before and what it is like now. So those are pretty interesting examples, I think, of all of this speculative historical fiction and alternative fiction, alternative history, you know, uh, genre of material that's out there. So now you have a couple that you could, you know, research yourself and take a look at. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Does he get those wonderful toys? Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. On today's Collectibles segment, we are going to continue with our original Kenner Star Wars action figure line. As we left off last time, we were in the beginning of Return of the Jedi, and today we're going to head into the middle of Return of the Jedi. The year is still 1983. The movie came out, and you have the full force, no pun intended, of the merchandising machine for Lucasfilm and Kenner. You know, you have the big push of all these figures. And as I mentioned before, this was the biggest push of them all in terms of volume and quality. But unfortunately, looming in the horizon, you know, the end is coming. In the meantime, the figures enjoyed a good run. What we are going to start with today is the Max Rebo Band. Now, the Max Rebo Band is an unusual set because it came as a set. You were never able to buy these figures independently, singly carded. The set comes with Ice Noodles, Droopy McCool, and Max Rebo. Now, the way that this worked is this three-figure set sold for, I think, $11.99, which, again, it's kind of different because you're dealing with a set with figures costing $2.99 a piece. You figure three a piece, three figures, that's $9. Well, they're charging you $11.99. So where are you getting those extra $3 worth you know, of something? Well, what's cool about this set is that it comes with super cool accessories. And this is where you get your money's worth. Droopy McCool, who's the kind of like the, the very bloated looking <laughs> individual, very uh, light skin. You can't even see his eyes. He has a huge nose and a mouth and he plays a flute. Well, he comes with a flute and he comes with a microphone. Now, that microphone, 
I've seen pictures of it being used on a different character in the set, but you know what? Who cares? You can point that microphone whoever you want to make it point at. In my case, I prefer to point it at him because if you figure that this is a band and you have a lead singer, you have a guy playing what appears to be an organ and a guy playing a flute or a small horn, I figure the small horn probably needs a little more amplification than the guy playing an organ. Well, let's jump to the guy playing the organ. That's Max Rebo, the so-called leader of the band. <laughs> now, this is the character that could best be described as the blue elephant looking guy. <laughs> and like I said, he comes with an organ. The organ is great. It's a greatly manufactured, detailed accessory, well worth, you know, the extra money that this set costs. He sits in the middle of this organ. You can place him right in the middle. And, you know, he's playing the organ with his hands. It's really cool the way they made it. It's, it's again, for 1983, this is a great accessory. And like I mentioned before, I've seen pictures where that long extended microphone that I prefer to put on Droopy McCool goes with the Max Rebo character. Now, the figure itself, you got to keep in mind, we never really seen <laughs> below the waist <laughs> of what Max Rebo looks like. Because in the movie, you know, you just kind of see him, he's kind of sitting inside this organ. So you never got, got to see the bottom. Obviously, the bottom was probably all hollowed out because it's a puppet. So I imagine there was a guy just standing there, you know, playing the, uh, you know, playing it, you know, wearing, I don't know, shorts or jeans or something underneath. But here we get what he appears to be wearing a, uh, <laughs> a giant diaper. That's the best way to describe it. At least Drewby McCool has these really bizarre looking shorts that he's wearing. But Max Rebo is basically wearing a diaper. And what happened is that they left it the color of his skin. So they never bothered to, you know, paint it. Now, I don't know if that's just laziness in terms of, ah, who cares? It's the same color, you know, a uh, uh, plastic. So let's just you know, leave it that way. Or if they actually had a reference picture somewhere where the uh, the color of his little diaper is the same color as his skin, that light blue. Another cool thing about him is that part of the details is that, and, I, and this is something that you kind of miss sometimes when you watch the movie, is that the tips of his fingers are almost like little suction cups. Not like Greedo suction cups, but like built into the fingers, there are these dimples right at the tips of the fingers. And I always got a kick out of looking at that figure and looking at those, you know, the tips of those fingers. Now, one unusual thing about Max Rebo, this happens to a lot of people, you know, who own the, especially the, uh, the uncarded, the loose figures, is that over time with the, you know, with sun bleaching your, you know, UV rays hitting your figures and that sort of thing, the different types of discoloration that takes place. With Max Rebo, you get this weird thing where sometimes the body will stay bluer than the limbs and the head or vice versa. So sometimes you will notice when you find, uh, you know, loose Max Rebo figures, or even the ones that people post on Facebook, you know, pictures of their of their collection. You'll notice there's this, there's a distinct discoloration between, you know, those two parts of the body, similar to what happens sometimes with stormtroopers, where sometimes the certain body parts get yellower and some other parts stay whiter, and you see a big difference between the two. Well, this is something that uh, unfortunately the Max Rebo figure suffers from, but. Obviously, this is the type of thing where, you know, if there's enough loose figures out there, you can find one that's pretty, you know, evenly colored, you know, not too sun bleached. And obviously, if you're a customizer, it doesn't really matter at times. You you know, you just want them for parts, so it doesn't matter. Now, on the downside of the figure, even though it's a great looking figure, not until many, many years later did I realize that it is not exactly very screen accurate. 
Recently, I've been reading, I think it's like a Star Wars dictionary, encyclopedia, visual dictionary, something like that. And they reprinted, because these, these pictures existed before, a couple of shots and a couple of descriptions of a lot of the characters, including Max Rebo. And it talks about how, and when you really look at the picture, it makes sense that he is actually playing with his feet. <laughs> it's, it seems that what we look to be hands, they're actually legs because of the way they elbow, which is not an elbow, it's more of a knee, bends upwards. It's a bizarre looking thing. Similar to Sebulba, if you think about it from Phantom Menace, it's a bended leg that he is using as hands in a way which would then make you want to think since we never really did see him from the waist down does he really have legs you know does he have another set of legs or does he not have any legs i mean we never really <laughs> got to see the diaper but it's you know you start to think wait a minute is this accurate could this figure be completely wrong so it would require a little more research in terms of trying to find the actual puppet to see what the rest of it looks like. So that's a very unusually interesting thing. The other thing is that as good as the organ is, again, from looking at some pictures, it seems to be missing some parts. The, the organ does have this little side box on the side that you can kind of see that something is happening in that box. But on the opposite end, you know, behind Max Rebo, the organ seems to have kind of like an opening where I guess the air comes out of the organ and the sound comes up. It's almost like a built-in speaker. And that is yet another thing that is like, wait a minute, this might not be that screen accurate. So it's these little fun facts that, uh, you know, I really appreciate them and, you know, makes you want to keep looking for more information. All right, so I did a little research. <laughs> and my suspicion was right. Max Rebo was never supposed to have legs or a diaper. That is something they created for the action figure. There are pictures on the internet, you can find them, and there's an actual Star Wars article on StarWars.com that talks about that specific thing, that the action figure was expanded, whereby the figure of the puppet, the conceptual puppet drawings and the actual finished puppet, is basically what you see on the screen, which is a blue guy with his legs up, playing the organ. There are no legs. There are no secondary set of legs. There are no arms. He is playing with his legs. You know, there is no diaper, even though theoretically he is kind of sitting there naked if you think about it, because if you look at the rear of the puppet, you could see the puppet butt. <laughs> if you... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he is playing, uh, you know, this device with his legs, kind of like Sebulba walked around. And in the costume, you know, the way that they figured it out, you know, how to puppeteer, you know, how to, how to control the puppet, uh, apparently, yeah, they did have one or two operators inside the puppet. But they were not, you know, there, there was no second section of the costume. It was basically what you saw on screen. That was it. There's nothing hiding beneath. So this is a, an interesting little tidbit of why the action figure wears a diaper and why is it so wrong. <laughs> well, like I said, this is the only time that originally these figures were sold as a set. Now, the lead singer of the show... It's Ice Noodles. Now, here's a cool-looking figure, again, for its time, because you have, obviously, the, the basic shape of it, but 
it was very well constructed. You know, you have the, the protruding trunk with the lips at the end, the feathery looking thing on top, and, you know, the high, very high legs, and also a little kind of skirt looking thing that is completely a different material, you know, that is attached to, to the waist. So, you know, they didn't cheap out here and just kind of paint the whole thing the same thing. They, they really went all out with, with the lead singer. Now, the lead singer does have a traditional microphone, which is very similar to the one we saw in the movie. I would have to watch the movie again just to, you know, cue up that scene to see exactly who has that other microphone. Because now I'm like wondering, well, who exactly should have that microphone? Now, from what I understand, the microphones, apparently two different versions were out there. There is a, you know, as far as variations go, originally I had the silver looking ones, the kind of dark gray, silvery looking ones. But apparently, based on what I'm reading from some of these books, there was a black version of those microphones out there too. Now, currently, I own a black reproduction version of the microphones because I lost mine way, way, way long ago. And for some reason, those are one of these bizarre, expensive items that sometimes they're worth, usually worth more than the actual figure sometimes. So I said, screw it. I just want them, you know, it's just an accessory. I just, I don't care what, what it's made of as long as it kind of resembles what I'm looking for. So that's what I have. Now, going back to regular figures... The first one up in what I would consider to be the individual 77 backs, because now we're up to 77 figures that you're going to start seeing in the back, including the Max Rebo band. They're kind of considered figures, even though they came in a set. And you do start to see them in the back of the card, not as individuals. But the first I would put into the category of the 77s, and again, I'm trying to kind of sneak in the, uh, the Max Rebo band too, is AD8, which... If you guys remember AD8, he's one of the two torture droids in Jabba's palace. He's the one that's all white. He's the guy that is pulling like a lever and these hot irons are about to hit a power droid. You know, that's who this guy is. The first time that this character appears is not necessarily on a card as far as the figure. Just like they've done many, many times before, there was a Sears exclusive Jabba playset. It was called the Jabba Dungeon Playset. Ooh. And as you guys probably guessed by now, because they've done this so many times, what they did was they used the old droid factory from Star Wars that they had already reused <laughs> for other purposes. And I think in Empire Strikes Back, everybody gets a shot at that one. It's amazing. Everybody gets a shot at that one. This time they just repainted it gray. They took out all the accessories. They left, I think they might have left the crane in some shape or form. And now it's... Jabba's playset. Guess what? You throw in a couple of figures. Well, this is one of the figures that was included in that playset. I'll talk about the other ones a little later. But that is the first way that you could get your hands on this figure. I didn't have a Sears nearby, so I never had access to those figures, which I regret to this day because that might have been one of the few ways that I could get my hands on some of the more exclusive ones. But like I said before, eventually they did card this figure and put it out there for sale. And that's how I bought it. Now we're still dealing, like I said before, with the $2.99 price point. And it's a really cool looking figure. Again, I mentioned so many times that the line got so much better. The sculpting got so much more creative. And this guy, you know, he's there. He's got it all. You look at him and you're like, wow, there's absolutely nothing that could have been reused you know, from this figure, from before. This is a completely original sculpt, and it is very true to life to, the, you know, what exactly uh, the animatronic that they use, the puppet that they use looks like. Next, you have Klaatu in Skiffguard outfit. This is a character that, okay, let me think if you, let me, let me think about it. If you 
remember when Luke is fighting in Jabba's skiff and he he gets you know gets back on the skiff and he's he's got his lightsaber and he's fighting these guys and and one guy comes and shoots him in the hand well one of those guys that come after him at that moment is clad two now clad two has a um lizardy kind of face but he's wearing this white very loose jumpsuit type of a <laughs> costume the guy is on for like a second he's very very briefly in there you don't see too much of him, but he has become personally to me my special figure, if you will, because, you know, through the internet, you know, researching Star Wars endlessly the way I usually do, you know, I found out that that particular Klaatu, and I say this particular Klaatu because there is a figure that is sold as Klaatu. This one is more often referred to as Skiffguard. If you look at the uh, like the making of and the visual dictionaries and this and that, there is another uh, character that I think they, the, the action figure is labeled Wolf or something like that, which I think I might have talked about it earlier. So there is a distinction between these two. They're, they're kind of like the same race, but they're not the same character. Well, this particular one was played by two different actors. The one that played him in that costume inside Jabba's palace, which was shot in England is different than the one that played him in Arizona, where they shot the outdoor skiff battles. That's played by another actor. And the one that's shot outdoors, the one from Arizona, is the one that I'm always uh, you know, chasing around and reading interviews, because that, that guy is Corey D. Williams, Billy D. Williams' son, which had done a little bit of a cameo, I guess, a little a bit part, if you will. He did some body double shots of Lando hanging from the damaged smaller skiff. And he also did the costume Klaatu, the one that I'm just talking about right now. And it's a, a little bit of a focus collection of mine. I try to get as many Klaatu things as possible, especially vintage Klaatu things, knowing, again, because of the fact that there's so little of it. There's only, He's such a low-level character that is very hard to find anything resembling him, you know, as far as merchandising goes. But this particular figure is a very good likeness of him. I actually made a custom version of him a while back, which is uh, what I did is I took off his head and I took off his hands and I re-glued and added a Lando head, Lando hands, because there is a picture of Corey D. Williams, you know, without his mask and without his gloves. And you can see him, he kind of, you know, he looks like his father a little bit. So I was able to, to kind of paint you know, adjust the face a little bit, add this head covering that he's wearing, you know, underneath the mask that he wears. So it's an ongoing thing for me to always be able to see if I can get Klaatu in some shape or form. But uh, the figure is great. It comes with a completely different looking accessory. And it's kind of like, um, it's labeled as a skiff guard force pike, which is, like I said, completely original. I've never seen this one before. Up to now, all of Jabba's thugs have this, the, the vibroblade type of uh, staff that they're holding, but this one's completely different. Don't ask me how it works. I, I couldn't tell you because I'm not sure exactly what it does. It's one of these things in the film that looks interesting, but you never got to see the, uh, you know, the futuristic sci-fi part of it. Just like the Gamorrean Guard has this huge axe, but, and it is called a vibro axe, I believe, but we don't know what the vibro part means. There is some futuristic aspect of it, I guess. This has a similar situation. You do see a picture of him, you know, holding this pole-looking thing, but you never 
actually see him use it. So you're not sure exactly what happens to it or what it does. Because his character, even though his character doesn't die on camera, <laughs> you could say he dies when the skiff barge explodes. But I, I don't believe that. I think he, he made it and he definitely should be part of the, uh, the new uh, movies that are out there. But I digress. Again, cool looking figure, great looking figure. It's a great addition for, I don't want to call it army building because... Jabba's thugs is not really an army where you can just buy the same character, you know, 10 times and now you got an army. They're all individuals and they're all different creatures, most of them. So it's a good addition to the to the Jabba line of, of baddies. Now, what's interesting about Clyde 2, similar, huh? similar to AD8, is that he was also included in the Jabba dungeon playset. So if you wanted to get your hands on Clyde 2 early... <laughs> that's the place you could have found them. Once again, I didn't have that Sears, so I went for the carded one. And as a matter of fact, he is the only carded figure that I currently own. Not original in terms of, you know, my original purchase. I open everything. When I bought my stuff, I play with it. I did everything, you know, right there on the spot. But over the last couple of years, I had the opportunity to buy a carded figure from the Return of the Jedi line, and that's the one I picked. I'm like, well, you know what? I want to own a carded figure just for the sake of having it, just for the sake of being able to own an actual carded figure. And because he is such an obscure character that most people really don't care about, everybody wants the hero or the shiny robot or the main bad guy. He is kind of like a background character, but to me, he's, you know, he's he's very special. So I have him. I'm looking at him right now. He's, he's on the bubble and everything, and it's he's minty fresh. Minty fresh, if that were ever to be opened. Up next, you have Nikto. Uh, Nikto, well, here we go again. Nikto is another one of Chavez's uh, henchmen. And before I forget, I'm going to mention it as usual. He's another Sears exclusive from Java's playset. Once again, this one, if you got that playset, you were able to preview and get three fast figures, you know, without having to wait for the carded ones. Another different type of creature. He's part of the Latu Barada Nikto. <laughs> By now, everybody understands that uh, it, that all comes from the day the Earth stood still. Also, Army of Darkness with Ash making, uh, having to recite those three words. But yes, those three characters, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Well, Klaatu is Klaatu, Barada is a one that's coming, and Nikto is the middle one. Again, great looking figure. They did a great job with the sculpt. The face is definitely different than other ones. And once again, another accessory that we've never seen before. Another kind of force pike kind of thing. It's slightly different than Klaatu's. But uh, yeah, same situation here. You got it on the playset. And then if you waited a little bit, you could get it carded, you know, on your card. And his accessory is called a Skiffguard Battle Staff. Battle staff. Ooh, wow, that's interesting. And that wraps up 1983. The year ended. The movie was a huge hit, but the toys keep coming. And as I mentioned before, you know, the line will then start to suffer because there is no Star Wars in the horizon. So sooner or later, they got to figure something out or what to do about, you know, getting more material out there. 1984 starts with The Emperor. Now, The Emperor, for a lot of us, including myself, we were able to get him through a mail-away. They had an, another one of those classic mail-aways. This one, you mail away five proofs of purchase. And then later, you receive your emperor. And that's how I did. I got my emperor, which is technically the beginning of the second wave of Return of the Jedi figures. 
came in a little white box with a little catalog as they usually do. The, the figure is in the little baggie. You, know, you open it and it has the accessory. The accessory is the cane. The Emperor is an interesting figure because it has no soft goods whatsoever. The way they did him was they molded his robes. So you really cannot, you know, look under the robes to see what's going on inside the Emperor's costume. See, I'm sure he's supposed to be wearing another something else underneath, and I'm sure the, even the actor was. But, yeah, this is one of those situations where you really can't, you know, you're still dealing with five points in articulation, but they, you do articulate the entire robe. So it's, it's a little awkward when you try to pose the figure in different ways because, the, you know, obviously, if it's not a soft good, it doesn't behave like a soft good would behave. And this is nothing new, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi is covered in soft goods, but only the vinyl cape is the only thing they gave him as a soft good, but it's not really a soft good, it's vinyl. But the rest of it, you know, you, they, they, you know they molded, you know, robes on him, but this is a, a case where, yeah. Now, the sculpt of the face and the hands is great. The face is really creepy looking. You know, they did an excellent job. And in a way, you know, by keeping it molded, you kind of say, well, you know what? Then you kind of keep the intention of what the robes are supposed to look like. The cane is also, it's a black cane, very, again, very ugly looking cane, kind of like, you know, like it's supposed to. The only complaint I have about the figure is that his robes are supposed to be black, but here they made him like a dark gray. Now, I'm not sure why. I don't know if black is a problem. I don't know if black didn't work out too good. It didn't look right, but I think I would have preferred a darker, darker gray or black because it's a little closer to the color. His flesh tones are really good. They're very like a, a light gray bordering on green almost because, you know, the emperor does have that kind of disgusting <laughs> flesh color on him. You know, he's supposed to look very old and, and weird. But yeah, this is another figure that eventually, you know, afterwards it came out in a card. So you were able to get him in that manner. All right, up next we have the ATST driver. This is a cool little figure that, once again, we're dealing with a completely different sculpt as far as the uniform goes. The head, the helmet, the whole thing is brand new. And as I mentioned in the past about how these things kept improving, he gets a brand new gun. He gets this new laser pistol. Now, granted, we don't see this pistol in the movie, but they do have to give him an accessory. So that's the one they pick, is this brand new one that we will see throughout other figures in the Jedi line. One interesting tidbit about this character is that in the movie, when we actually do see this character inside the AATSTs, they were portrayed, the two that we do see, by Richard Marquand and Robert Watts, the director and one of the producers of the film. And that's where they made their little cameos. Now, I can't tell you which of the two characters this one represents. This is obviously a generic driver. But I do know that, in, for example, in the future Kenner Hasbro lines, when they re-release these figures, they did include a small picture of Richard Marquand as the character. So it's funny how that kind of worked its way into the future lines. But this original Kenner one is really cool. The action figure itself is uh, ripe for customizing. You can take the body, for example, and do a couple of things with it. You can swap out heads and give them like an Imperial officer head. So you now have an Imperial, kind of like a ground crew uh, worker. You know, you have this nice, very light gray uniform that you could use on him. You could also swap out the head and put a Han Solo head on him from the sequence where he's pretending to be the driver talking, you know, to the bunker to have them open the doors. And you could even carve out the helmet if you want, have them hold the helmet 
or even wear the helmet. That's fine. You could do either one of those. It works either way. Then we have the B-Wing Pilot. Now, the B-Wing Pilot is a completely new sculpt once again, and it is very elaborate and different because now we have what is a, let's say, for example, the X-Wing Pilot, the Luke X-Wing Pilot uh, design, but it is completely different in terms of you have a new flight suit that's color red, you have a new vest that has all kinds of silver attachments to it. It's a black vest, like a flak jacket type of thing. And the helmet is something we have never seen before in an action figure is this kind of a dual-sided helmet with the soft top and the chin strap. You know, again, this is from the film. This is what the B-Wings, those large x shape rebel ships are. Well, here's the driver for it. Now, let's also keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, that once the Emperor hits as part of the waves, we are still in the 77 back wave. So these are all new figures that come, you know, in the 77 line. This particular figure, once again, just like the ATST driver, it comes with a blaster. Brand new blaster. The best way to kind of remember which kind of blaster this is, this is exactly like the one Leia pulls out in Endor when she's about to be attacked by a scout trooper. Well, they give the B-Wing pilot the same blaster. Once again, we don't see it being operated. We don't see it being used. It's just that they have to give him something. This is another figure that, for customizing purposes, is very, very handy because once you take off that head, now you have a piloty looking uh, body that you could add to just about anybody else's head. Next one up, Han Solo in trench coat. Now, what's cool about this figure is that it works as a generic Han Solo from Return of the Jedi, you know, the, the fully dressed Han Solo, the one that we see in the, let's say, last third of the film. And it also works as the trench coat Han Solo, which is the one we first see him when they first land in Endor. The sculpt is great. It is such a great improvement from the original sculpts, you know, the Star Wars sculpts. I would say it's even a better sculpt in a way than the Empire Strikes Back sculpt. The colors are a little better. The proportions are a little better. The size of the head to torso really, really has been improved on quite a bit. He does come with his usual blaster. There might be some head variations in terms of how they paint the eyes and the eyebrows and that sort of thing. But the biggest difference that you can find with this particular figure comes with the actual trench coat. The trench coat is basically painted. It has a design, you know, a camouflage brown on tan design. And the lapel is the place where you do see the variation. Some of them have a lapel that is tan, like the inside of the coat. And some of them have a lapel that is camouflage, like the outside of the coat. Those are the two major variations that you have out there. Once again, the body is a great example for doing customs. If you want to go into the uh, Lando wearing Han's clothes route, this is a good one to start with. Then you have Princess Leia in combat poncho. Now, what you got here is, again, a completely original sculpt of Leia with her hair, you know, tied in the back. She's wearing Endor disguise, if you will, because the little poncho goes over the action figure. This is a soft cloth poncho. A little different than the Han Solo I just mentioned before. The Han Solo one, it was almost like a, like a synthetic suede, almost. Uh, Leia is more of the traditional felt type of cloth. It is a camouflage color, dark green on light green. And you put it on and you slide her hands through the poncho slits so that her hands can come out and then you wrap it all around with a belt that comes that snaps 
you know, off on the side. Now, what's cool about this belt is that you can take her blaster, the same one as the uh, ATST driver, but it is more appropriate for her because she actually used it in the film, which is, you know, much, much more appropriate. And she also comes with a helmet that is removable, an indoor removable helmet, which is great. And which is a bizarre thing when you sometimes have figures that come with the helmet that's removable and sometimes you cannot remove the helmet. So, you know, I guess sometimes when the head is too big to begin with, it would look very awkward to make a smaller head on purpose, you know, so that you can fit a helmet. But in her case, because she is already a smaller kind of figure and the head is kind of slightly thinner, I guess it is much easier to be able to slide a helmet onto her. One somewhat obscure character that also shows up on this wave is Pruneface. <laughs> if you're not too familiar with Pruneface, he has a very quick, quick shot <laughs> at the Rebel briefing. He's back there, he's got an eye patch, and he's got a pretty big, uh, funky-looking head. He's wearing a robe, and he does have a hood that sometimes it's on, sometimes it's off. He's got green pants and a tan shirt, and a very normal rifle like wooden rifle looking weapon that comes with it completely original never seen this before comes with a sling and everything again another figure that you know if you're going to go really really out there in customizing world you could use some of the body parts um, not so much the head the head is just too original then we have the rancor keeper <laughs> uh he is a character that uh well it's there <laughs> <laughs> There's not much you could do with him. A completely original sculpt, a very large body kind of sculpt. And then I think I've seen some people try to use this sculpt to customize their own version of Porkins, believe it or not, because he does have those kind of proportions. He does have some uh, original accessories. He has that little, little like a hood type of thing that he wears that you can just kind of plop it on his head. He does have a Biver blade, <laughs> which looks a lot like a gaffy stick. Except it's a different color. And like I mentioned before, it's completely original. It's a shirtless, bald character. You know, you don't see uh, too much skin being uh, displayed on action figures of that era. There Now, there might be some variations in the uh, shades of the vibroblades. Some of them are darker. Some of them are grayer. But uh, again, this is not a very popular figure. Now, on this wave, you also have a couple of uh, new Ewoks in the mix. You have Tebow which is kind of like a light gray and dark gray striped Ewok. He's got a, uh, a skull cap that it's some kind of animal, like some kind of pig or something. He has a horn that hangs by uh, a rope around him, and he's carrying a staff slash axe, let's say. You know, when you're army building your Ewoks, this is another entry in the collection. And then you have Wicked. Now, Wicked is... You know, one of the stars, <laughs> the most important of all the uh, Ewoks. Very small figure, comes with that little hood that he wears, a little like a bib hood type of thing, and a spear that he carries. Now, what's uh, unusual about this particular character is that it is very small, which is in proportions to what he should be. And this is where things get a little dicey sometimes with action figures, and that is that even though we're still sticking to the $2.99 price range, it is kind of a lot to pay for a figure that tiny. So in the future, I know what they did was sometimes when you had smaller figures, they would pair them up with something else. This way you kind of feel like you're getting your money's worth. But that is something that back then they really didn't do, you know, at that point. When you had a character like Yoda, when you had a character like the Jawa, you know, kind of smallish 
characters, they really didn't go out too much. I mean, accessories, Yoda does have a number of accessories that he comes with. Okay, well, maybe that's how you make up for it. The Jawa, well, you have a cloth or a vinyl cape and, you, and a blaster, you know, some kind of Jawa blaster. Okay, fine. In this case, all you got is a spear and the little hood he wears. So there's really not much you can do with that. Now, the last two figures I want to talk about from this wave are Lumat and Paplu. Now, these two figures are more traditionally lumped in with the last 17 wave, the wave we're going to talk about next time. But what's unusual about them is that they were carded as 79 backs. So, yes, they are more easily recognizable as part of the last 17, but they did have their own individual card back assortment. They're 79 backs, like I just said. What makes these guys a little different? Well, Lumat, for example, is a kind of like a tannish, light tan color Ewok. He's got his little hood, his little brown hood, and he's carrying a little satchel of quivers because he also holds a bow. So that's kind of neat, you know, slightly different accessory on a character. And what's also cool is that his arm is bent in a permanent bent position. This way he can be holding the bow as if you're holding a bow. So that's kind of neat. And one unusual little fact about this one is that in the international tri-logo cards for this figure, he was blacked out in the back because they didn't want people to see him ahead of time, you know, as that has happened, you know, times before when they don't want to release too much information about a figure. Paplu, on the other hand, is an all brown, almost kind of reddish brown color Ewok. He's got a very tan color hood with um, red and black feathers on top very colorful you know it it pops out so much because of his color and he is also holding some sort of a wooden staff again with Paplu you have the same situation as Lumat he is part of the so-called 79 backs but he is more closely associated with the last 17 just like Lumat once again in the tri-logo cards they blacked out his picture in the back and another reason why we kind of lump these with the 17 backs is that these are the first two that actually started coming with the coins you got to remember that uh, as an extra little bonus gift i guess uh, to your toy buyers uh, they started introducing coins coins with the molded you know stamped sculpt of that character the name the type of character he is and, you know, an image of the person's face. Well, these two came with a coin attached to the card back. A completely new marketing push, I guess you can call it, to kind of entice people into, hey, look at this, we're throwing you a little something extra for you to, you know, want to collect. And unfortunately, it didn't last too much because once we get to the last 17, we're pretty much done with the line. This wraps up the 77 and 79 backs. Now, the year is not over, but we will talk about what comes later in the year, in 1984, when the last 17, the Power of the Force line, comes on. But that's a tale for a different day. And this brings us to the end of this part of our Star Wars Kenner action figure retrospective. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? 
We were looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. Okay, for today's movie adaptation comic book review, we are going to take a look at Escape from the Planet of the Apes. This is the same series that I've been reviewing in the past. This is the Malibu Graphics version of the series. And as you guys remember, this is a set of original Marvel comics that they were released in a Marvel brand magazine, comic magazine, you know, a long time ago, back in the 70s. And then later in the early 90s, because there were some rumblings of a possible new revival of the Planet of the X franchise, some licensees were offered access to, you know, to that brand. And Malibu Graphics happens to be one of them. Now, they did some original stuff. There's lots of original stuff that they did. But what they also did was they were able to reprint some of the old Marvel ones. Now, the Marvel ones came in waves, just like regular comics do, where you have, you know, one issue is part one, part two, part three, you know, that kind of thing. Well, here, as I've done in the past, and as I've reviewed them in the past, you have the whole movie adaptation in one book. This particular one is Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which is, I would say, one of the weakest films from the franchise. Not the weakest one. The weakest one is definitely the last one. <laughs> the last one is the worst one of all, which is, I think is Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And we've talked about this in the past, and we've done Ape Special. You know, by the time they got to the last one, the budget was such a minuscule fraction of what the original one was. And as the budgets kept getting lower and lower, you kind of saw it in the production value of these films. However, this is a story that gives us an entire new take on the franchise itself. Because remember, this is the story that they came up with after Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which was a movie that was supposed to end everything from some of the things i've been reading one of the reasons why they went in that direction with that film was not so much just the fact that they could get charlton heston and that's the only way he would agree to be on it it was to have him killed so they can kind of put it all to bed but the studio executive from 20th century fox at the time he was also having some problems i think with the rest of the board and they were about to fire him or they were angry at him or something happened and he kind of wanted to just kind of like end it all <laughs> not, not his life but this franchise he wanted to kind of put it all to bed too so there was a combination of deciding factors of you know why they wanted to kind of kill the franchise now granted when beneath planet of the apes came out they still made more money you know money was still coming in so they were like oh man we have to keep going. We can't stop. So they had to come up with a new story. And this one gives you that story of the traveling back in time. Now, the comic book version of this story is a very interesting one. Because just like in the previous ones, it does follow the story pretty, pretty on spot in terms of how well, you know, you go through the entire story. Because it is such a multi-part story to begin with, you know, they are able to not ignore too many things. The two biggest differences that I want to talk about right now are the beginning of the story and the style of the art. And let's start with the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story has a lot, and I mean a lot, of panels devoted to not only the ship taking off from the Planet of the Apes, but 
the astronauts, <laughs> or the apenauts as they called them, being inside the capsule and being able to, you know, hit some buttons and they're watching the Earth and they see this whole explosion take place and the Earth actually exploding and much like you would see in a more modern sci-fi film where you actually can see an actual planet explode. Something like Star Wars, for example, you know, that kind of a detail. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And how the explosion kind of knocks the their ship out of the way and the ship goes spinning and they are losing control of the ship and you know as they slowly start to regain control by no means of their own you know they're just kind of there for the ride more or less they kind of see how the date starts to change and they go from the the year 3950 something you know all of a sudden the number starts to flip as they seem to be traveling to some weird space wave or something and the year changing to 1975 and once again we get shots of the ship and we go through the entire procedure of you know u.s government be being able to detect the ship from far away and they're going to rescue it because it appears to be an american ship and blah 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 now right off the beginning not only right off the beginning but <laughs> as they're pulling the ship out of the water and as we've seen it before the ship resembles nothing like what we had seen in the movie. For some reason, they decided on this comic to make the capsule be more like a traditional capsule as opposed to that triangular-shaped, super-slick-looking ship that we got to know in the film. Now, in the film, for continuity purposes, and not so much for reality purposes, but just for continuity purposes, they look like they were reusing the same ship and that's how they was explained in the story they were able to retrieve the ship out of the water and they were able to repower it god knows how but we have to kind of go along with it and they were able to launch don't know how go along with it and you know all the other events that happen in the movie that make the ship go back in time you know that part of the movie is something that we kind of like i said you got to go with it because the whole movie falls apart if you don't get past that point. You know, explaining the MacGuffin of time travel is very difficult, you know, in most films. And this one is even harder than all. But I still do not understand how or why they did not maintain continuity with the look. Like I said before, you look at the ship and it's a cylindrical looking, you know, capsule rocket type of launch, which... You know, what are you going to do? You just cannot wrap your mind around the fact that they went in a different direction. Now, I know that at times, you know, when you don't have the rights to an actor's likenesses, and this used to happen in the past, and this still happens today sometimes, depending on, everything depends on contracts, you cannot replicate their face. And this was more important on the last two comics that I reviewed, because somebody like Charlton Heston, you know, he is a, he was a megastar and his face was his face. And when you read these previous comics, uh, not only him, but the guy who played Brent, uh, Franciscus, you know, the drawings, the art that they were using those comics, they were obviously trying to look different because uh, I assume they didn't have the rights, you know, to those actors. They couldn't just use them. They have the rights to the characters, but they didn't have rights to the actors. Now, I'm wondering, is that possible that you also don't have rights to certain models? That makes absolutely no sense. 
if there's one thing you have the rights to is the story and the elements of the story, and usually the people, the actors, are the hardest ones to, you know, being able to get the rights to. But I guess we, I will never know. Why did they decide to go with a completely looking ship? I don't know. I absolutely love the original ship. I love the design. I know it's probably not accurate in terms of, you know, scientifically prudent <laughs> design, but it's just a cool looking ship. And when you have these kind of movies, when you're dealing in the world of science fiction, you know, coolness will always be more important than the science. I mean, a lot of these things don't make sense a lot of times, but it has to look good. This is a visual medium, so it has to look good. If you don't care about it looking good, then turn it into a radio play. <laughs> All you have to go is just talk about it. You don't even have to back up anything with anything, any sort of visuals. But in this particular case, for some reason, they went in that direction. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the art. Because like I said before, the story is pretty faithful to what we saw on the movie. The art here, I don't understand it. And by that I mean, there are drawings here, and let me give you the names of the artists, because I guess they had to kind of change artists depending on which, you know, book they were doing. The illustrator is named Rico Rival. Now, I'm not familiar with his name, I don't know what else he's done, but what I find unusual about his style is that there are so many sections here, especially in the beginning, when the army is all flustered about the apes, you know, first being discovered, that to me, the style of the art, it almost looks like Mad Magazine. How over dramatic people's reactions are, how sometimes even slightly out of proportion, uh, you know, the head is to the body, let's say. With the apes, it's a little difficult because with the apes, you know, you don't have, you know, in the movie, you didn't have too much expressions that you could do with those masks they were wearing. There's a few things they could do. But I find it that with drawings, it's even more difficult sometimes to kind of give them facial expressions. And this is a film that is super heavy, super heavy with, you know, ape art. You know, the first two films, there's a lot of human, you know, story development that has to do, you know, in the first film, and even in the second film. But this one, they have to deal with more, you know, their leads are two apes. You know, are two, you know, the famous two apes from, you know, the original films. So they do have to spend a lot of time on these apes. Now, like I said, the story progresses pretty faithfully. And what's interesting about it is that I think I kind of appreciate the story more in this comic book form because it is so much clearer how this movie or this story sets up the following one, which is one of my favorite ones, you know, altogether. I absolutely love the one that comes next, which is Conquest for the Planet of the Apes. Now, unfortunately, unless I get my hands on the original Marvel ones, I'm not going to be able to review Conquest because from what I understand, Malibu Graphics kind of lost the license or kind of gave up on it or something. I don't know. Right around the time after they make this particular version. So at some point, the company stopped making them. Not only did they stop their original line of stories, but they also stopped these adaptations. And they never got to do the compilations for Conquest and Battle. Now, Battle, I really don't care that much, to tell you the truth. But as a somewhat of a completist collector, you know, I would like to be able to have that. 
but I'm more interested in Conquest. I mean, that is, again, like I said, it's one of my favorite ones. I would say it's probably my second favorite one. The original is the classic. You cannot get away from the original. My second favorite one is Conquest. My third, I would say it's Beneath. My fourth is Escape. And my last one is Battle. But unfortunately, like I said, because they never turned them into these compilations after Escape... The only way to get my hands on these original ones would have to be the original Marvel ones, which is, I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's four or five or six issues. And right now, for whatever reason, I guess they're just so rare that, you know, even on eBay, they're too expensive to get the entire set uh, that makes up all of Conquest for the Planet of the Apes. So what I would say is, again, if you're an Apes fan, you should be very well familiar with these. Get them. They're pretty reasonable. This particular one that I got is funny because I was looking for Beneath just by itself. And this was part of a lot of, of the original one, Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape the Planet of the Apes, and and another one that has nothing to do with the movies. It's, it was an original one based on their, you know, their original line. So I got four of them, which included two of them that I wanted. But again, once I started researching a little more, hey, is there a conquest somewhere? I'd love to read Conquest. Unfortunately not, it's not there. <laughs> so there's a good chance we might have to stop at this point unless I can get my hands on Conquest somehow. But if I do, I will definitely uh, review it because like I said, Conquest, as the budgets kept getting smaller, you could kind of tell they were running out of money. But with Conquest, there was a freshness in the storyline. St- I love that story. It's such a revolutionary type of story. And I appreciate Escape from the Planet Apes a lot more now because it lays the groundwork for Conquest in a much bigger manner. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We uh, did the alternative history segment, which got us, you know, slightly back in time into some of these other films we used to watch and television shows and TV movies and even some of the older books that a lot of the stuff is based on and how it seems to continue as a very prominent piece of genre, you know, in, in the type of stuff that we're interested in. And also Star Wars action figures. We continue once again. We only have, I think, maybe one more, maybe two. Maybe I can squeeze two more out of our old Kenner action figures and the history and reviewing them and how cool they are. And our latest entry in the Planet of the Apes comic book movie adaptations with Escape from the Planet of the Apes. You know, I hope we'll have some more in the future because it is fun to revisit any type of ape-related material. So... On behalf of everybody here, we'd like to thank you for joining us, and we will see you here soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. This is Dr. Zero, her loving husband Cornelius, and little Milo. The most dangerous to man is little Milo. Why? The time is 1973. The place is right here on Earth. How did they get here? What is their reception? Welcome, gentlemen, to the United States. Escape from the planet of the apes. Their adventures are completely fresh, completely new. Astonishingly different from what you experienced in Planet of the Apes and beneath the planet of the apes. At first, feared and imprisoned. We'll take the female first. Well, she seems to be pretty smart. All right. We'll go for the banana. 
Well, why doesn't she take it? Because I loathe bananas. I don't believe it. Zira, are you mad? Until we know who our friends are and who our enemies... And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? We can speak, so I spoke. The president convenes a special board of inquiry. Have you a name? Zira. Does the other one talk? Only when she lets me. <laughs> Embraced by our civilization, the nation gives them a hero's welcome. Address, please. To Zoom. <laughs> Well, it's sort of, uh, like grape juice plus. How is that? Very wet. It's certainly the most incredible story this reporter has ever covered. And you share the impact of every incredible moment. Must have been the shock. Shock my foot. I'm pregnant. The president's chief advisor wants them murdered, or else the human race cannot survive. The escape. The birth of an infant who could threaten man's very existence. You're the second human I've kissed. You are the first. The relentless chase. The stunning climax. Baby. If you won't give it to me, I'll shoot. Why was Washington thrown into a turmoil by this one baby? Stop him! Escape from the planet of the apes. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. <laughs>Broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>